0: Good afternoon, everyone. Good. We're going to uh, begin by reading the passage that we're going to look at together. So, for those of you who are not uh, regularly here, we we started working our way through the letter to the Hebrews before the summer. Then we've taken a break away from it. Now we're coming back to where we left off. Um, I'm going to read from chapter 5, verse 11. Through to chapter 6, verse 12. And I've written up here, read it carefully. So I want you to pay attention as we go through. This is not the most straightforward passage of scripture. So just sort of give it your full concentration. About this time, sorry, right. Read it carefully. Yeah, read it carefully, Chris. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. inherit the promises. So the passage that we're looking at this afternoon um, can be seen as a kind of section in parenthesis. It's in in brackets. If you think of it in that way, that the the writer has been setting out his message as we've worked through from chapter 1 through to chapter 5, verse 10, And having reached that point, before he goes any further, he recognises that there's an issue that he needs to address. So he goes off on a slight tangent, and he comes back to it again later. But we should be clear, before we go any further, what his clear objective is in writing this this bit in brackets, if you like. And it's it's to help the people that he's writing to, which of course includes us, to have full assurance of hope. That's where we're going. Okay? So if you get lost in the middle of all this, at least by the end of it, you, you need to know that what God wants for each one of us is the absolute full assurance. That we have eternal life, that we are saved for eternity, and one day we'll be with Jesus. And chapter 6, verse 11, sums that up perfectly, um, where he says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, we don't use the word earnestness very much these days. So I looked up the amplified version of this, which I think makes it just a little bit easier to grasp. We desire for each one of you to show the same diligence all the way through so as to realise and enjoy the full assurance of hope until the end. However, even though that's what he wants to get to, the problem that he the writer sees with these people is one of what he calls dullness of hearing or the word could be translated sluggishness. He's been exploring a number of important truths regarding our relationship with God and how essential and integral to this is the life and the death and the ministry of Jesus. And he says in chapter 5, verse 11, that he wants to develop his argument further still. But he feels that he can't because, where, because of, some, some of the, where the, some of the readers are in their relationship with God. I want to say more about this, I, it, but it's hard to explain to you because of where you are at. He says... You ought to be progressing to spiritual maturity. But you're like babies who can only cope with milk rather than solid food. And he explains in chapter 6, verse 1, what that milk is. It's the elementary doctrine of Christ. It's the gospel. Good stuff. But it needs to bring us on to something more. We're in a process Um, in which God wants to grow us, to mature us, or to sanctify us. So in order to deal with the problem that he sees amongst his readers, he adopts a particular method of waking them up to the seriousness of their condition. So he applies some warnings and some encouragement. And I wanted to give you an example of this. And I thought of this and I thought, well, what's a good example of the method that he's adopting when he's talking to these people? And I thought, it's like someone training an athlete. And then I thought, do I know any athletes? And then I thought, well, look, here we are every week in this beautifully directed, decorated room and I, I sit here sometimes, I mean, my mind doesn't wander when people are preaching or anything like that, but I sometimes wonder, what on, how on earth did you get up that? And um, believe it or not, I've never been a climber, I've never been an athlete. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if we had somebody that does that sort of thing and we could just get their for? Intro- some uh, information from them. So I asked Ruben if he would um, let me interview him briefly. So, he's going to come forward, aren't you, Ruben? Well done. Mm-hmm. You don't know what he's going to say yet. All right, okay. Yeah. Now, you, you know what you've got to say, don't you? Okay. Um, <laughs> so, first of all, you, you do enjoy climbing, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And uh, I, my, I understand you quite you do quite well out here. I guess. Well. What's about the best you've done? Maybe when I won the Irish bouldering champs? Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. It's Irish national uh, You were the um, Irish national champion? Yeah. I'm not Irish. To be sure. <laughs> uh, very good. Yeah. Um, Okay, so that's about the best. So, how does this work? Do you, you know, like, turn up on a Saturday, and just climb up, <laughs> climb up the wall, doing your best? Uh, no. 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 I mean, you do your best, yeah. but it's not just about turning up. Yeah. So, what do you do? I have to train. Yeah. And practice. What, like, once a week? No, like, every day. Really? Yeah. What climbing up things every day? No, you have to do you have to do other stuff as well, like that's related to climbing. What? Right. Keeping yourself fit. Pretty much. So I think I remember a couple of times ago when we had the early morning prayer meeting. You were in the room doing some exercises, like yes. stretching your legs in funny places. And, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, do you have anyone to coach you? To uh, train I do have a coach, yeah. Do you have a coach? Yeah. So um, this is the bit I was interested about. So you have sort of routine exercises to do and you have a coach. Mm-hmm. And so when you go to one of your competitions, mm-hmm. just imagine this, right? So, so imagine that you have like three... I mean, how, how many attempts do you have at climbing in a competition? Uh, five attempts on each boulder. OK. Five attempts on each boulder. So, sorry, I didn't really... I, I know what you mean. Well, I think... I anyway, so, you have five attempts. Say, just imagine you got to, like, the fourth attempt. Mm-hmm. And you thought, do you know, I don't think I can do this anymore. I can't get... You know, right? And your coach was there. Mm-hmm. What would he do? Um, he'd encourage me, but he'd also say that like, I needed to do what I'd done in training, otherwise I wouldn't be able to do it. And right. That, yeah. So he wanted to give you a pep talk? Sort of, I guess. Yeah? Yeah. And th- you're saying, no, I just can't do it. What would you say? Uh, I could. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's okay. Good. That's all I wanted you to tell me. Thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> I suspect that there were individuals um, in the original, original community that received this letter who were like a flagging climber. It got to a point where somehow they'd lost the impetus, if you like. And so the writer is using the same tactics as a coach would use or a trainer would use. And he says things like, consider Jesus and look to Jesus. All the way through this letter, he's saying things like that. You've, you've taken your eyes away from what, I've been, what you've known to do, what you've been counseled to do. Look at Jesus, consider him. And he gives serious advice to put the basics into part of their daily routine. In effect, he's stating the fact that when your faith muscle isn't being used, it begins to die. It becomes dull and sluggish, begins to lose confidence. So he gives. Along with encouragement, he gives a grave warning here. If you ignore my advice, you will become weaker and weaker. It's not because he wants to ruin the climber. His desire is to give the person assurance and hope and confidence. But he starts with some warnings. So in chapter 6, looking at the first two verses... It says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, I think we should be careful here to understand there's a difference between the elementary doctrine of Christ and the foundation that's outlined here. To leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, that is the gospel, doesn't mean that we ignore it or that it's no longer important. No, we've done that, now we'll move on to something new. He's not saying that. What he's saying is We need to progress using the wonderful truths of the gospel, of what Christ has done for us, who he was, what he's done for us, how how that can work in our lives. And we need to use those facts to help us to grow and to mature and to move on. So he's not saying leave it, ignore it, neglect it. What he's saying is let's move on with what we've learned and apply that further in our lives to help us to become sanctified to be become mature he's already made it clear in chapter 5 verse 12 that the sluggishness or dullness that some at least of these people are exhibiting demonstrates the fact that they're not hearing and then and not focusing on the teaching of the gospel and building on that, which puts them in danger. So what's the foundation? If if milk is the doctrine of Christ, what's this foundation that they shouldn't be laying again? It could be basic Christian principles and practices, but it's more likely referring to Old Testament teachings and practices that pointed them to Christ and then were fulfilled in him. Repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment was the way the Old Testament prepared them, pointed them towards the coming of Jesus and what Jesus did when he lived and then died and was rose again. Remember, the whole theme of this letter, is to emphasise that Jesus is better. So he's saying, we don't need to go back to that stuff, the stuff that you learned about from the Old Testament. You don't need to... that's, That's done, and it's pointed us to Jesus. Now you have the doctrine of Christ, and you have the Gospel, and it's that with which you will now build. Remember, the whole theme of this is that Jesus is better. And some of the people are drifting back to focusing and concentrating on the old covenant rather than on what God has done for us in Christ. There's no doubt that not hearing and focusing on the teaching of the Gospel and building on that puts us in a dangerous place. So the writer brings warning in order to show the importance of what they're being shown here, in order to stress and highlight the seriousness of their situation. And he sets that out in what we find in verses 4 to 8. He says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. The point is, I believe, that it's possible to have experienced all of those things and still not be born again of the Spirit of God. You, you could come to meetings like this or services like this and you could hear, you could experience all of these things. You could be enlightened. Someone could stand up here and tell you stuff that you didn't know before and you think, oh, yeah, I, I understand that now. You could, you, could, you could taste the heavenly gift. You can share in the Holy Spirit. You can taste the goodness of the word of God. You could, if you like, you could be an attender in meetings, hear the gospel, sense the presence of God in the worship, be impressed with the word of God as it's explained to you, and even witness the work of God in other people's lives, the, the, the things of the age to come, touching people's lives and changing them. You could even experience something of that yourself, but not respond by receiving Jesus as your Saviour and Lord, surrendering yourself to him and his Lordship. You could do all those things. It doesn't mean that you're saved. In verse 6 of chapter 6, the writer described such people as those who are in the position, the perilous position, of what he calls fallen away. He's referring to those who've had a taste of all these things but have decided to walk away, to fall away, and have put themselves in danger of never being able to come back because they've dismissed the gospel, never being able to come back or into the kingdom and family of God. This is serious because, in effect, he says, that it's like they're crucifying the Son of God all over again, having rejected Christ and decided that being without him is better than receiving him as your saviour. You see, the danger is that if you you hear all this stuff and feel this stuff and taste this stuff and then you walk away from it and say, well, yeah, it's all very good but I'm not ready to give my life to Jesus. I'm not ready to accept him as my saviour. I'm not prepared to submit myself to the, the lordship of Christ. All very interesting but actually there's other stuff in my life and in the world, good stuff, things that I want to pursue. I'm leaving that. Behind. In effect, what you're saying is this is better than Jesus. It's all very good, but I'd rather go for this stuff instead. And the writer is there saying, in effect, what you're doing is by turning your back on him on Jesus, it's as though you're crucifying him all over again. You are despising what God has done in him. And he says, it's hard to get back from that position. In fact, he says, impossible. And in chapter six, then, verses seven and eight, he uses another picture to make the same point. He describes two pieces of farmland both receive rain, but one produces fruit and the other one doesn't. This refers to two types of people uh, or two kinds of responses to the benefits referred to back in, uh, in the passage we've just read about all the things that you could have tasted of. Both receive rain, but one produces fruit, the other doesn't. In some, it's evident that there's fruit. In some people, they, they taste of all those things, experience those things, and they respond by giving themselves to the Lordship of Jesus, accepting him as Saviour. And the Holy Spirit comes into their life and begins to produce fruit, the fruits of the Spirit, the characteristics of Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus is in them, and their lives are transformed. He says, you can tell that. But there are some who've received all that stuff. They've, they've tasted of all those things, the same thing, same rain that fell on both, both pieces of land. But some don't receive it. And therefore they don't produce the fruits that God wants to pr- produce in their lives, the likeness of Jesus in them. So where there's no fruit it's an evidence that that person has not responded in genuine faith to the gospel. Are you still? Or you're, I can see you're still awake, so that's, that's an encouragement. Having said all that and issued those words of warning and made it clear that these things are serious, they, they require sober consideration by all of us. The writer finishes this little diversion or this little tangent or this parenthetical interlude with these words of encouragement in verses 9 to 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Okay, in conclusion, I'd like to just ask three questions, or try and answer three questions. The first one is, can this happen to true believers? Can that happen to true believers? No, it can't. The person who drifts into sin and neglects the pursuit of personal sanctification... All right. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the person who drifts into sin and neglects the pursuit of personal sanctification and falls away from God is not a person who was once saved by the death of Jesus and then lost their salvation. That's not what it's talking about. If someone drifts away from God and makes shipwreck of faith, they don't lose the salvation they once had. But they show their lack of perseverance that they never truly belonged to Christ, were never born again, justified, adopted and sealed with the Holy Spirit. Second question, should we apply this warning to ourselves? Yes. Yes. Simply because this letter exists and this passage is there, of course we should apply it to ourselves. We should say, is this describing me or not? Simply because this letter exists, the writer is strongly confident that his readers are not going to make shipwreck of their faith. So he doesn't hold back in saying these things to them all, that amongst that gathering of people that he's writing to, or that, that group of people that he's writing to, there may be some who are sluggish, who are dull of hearing, who have experienced and tasted of all these things, but have never yet surrendered their lives to Christ. And he's saying that's a dangerous place to be. Okay, the third third thing to say is that when we're looking at something like this, looking at this passage, we need to put alongside this passage other scriptures that speak of the fact that we are saved and secure. So we can be confident of things like Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion on the day of Christ. You know that you've received Jesus as your Saviour. You know that the Holy Spirit has come into your life and he has begun a work. You're not perfect yet. Still make mistakes. Not every part of your life is bearing fruit as you would like it to be, but you know that God has begun a good work in you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21, it says that God will equip us with everything good, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He started a work in us. He will complete it, and he will work in us and with us to see that maturity and that growth. Jude, verse 24, says he is able to keep us from falling. Uh, Julie and I, our first five, five years as Christians were spent in the Salvation Army and the, the officer, the, the pastor, if you like, of that group, he used to finish every, every meeting with those words. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. To so the only wise God our Saviour be glory and majesty, blessing and power, both now and forever. He said it so many times, and we just, you know, we could sort of say it along with him when he got to that part. But he is able to keep you from falling. Yes. And then of course, there are many other scriptures, but there's just just one then that, to finish with that Jesus himself said. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand." Talking of those who had acknowledged him as the Messiah, the Savior, Christ. So if those things are true of us, and I would imagine most if not all of us here would say that. Yeah, I I believe all of that. I've accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour in my life. Why should we take this warning seriously? Well, God's way to keep us from falling is by drawing us to himself with promises, but sobering us with warnings. In other words... If nothing else comes out of reading that passage, for me and for you, if nothing else comes out of it except the fact that we, we, we come away from it saying, this is serious. This is serious. What he's saying here is serious. I need to take serious notice of what's being said here. The point of the promises is to engage our hearts for the eternal glory of God. The point of the warnings is to disengage our hearts from the fading and perishing glory of this world. So, that's the end of my notes. And I just wanted to say, sort of, you know, just, only you and God knows where you stand, where I stand in relationship to him. Whether whether or not, We've, having tasted and experienced so much of the wonders of God, the truth of his word, whether or not I have responded personally in faith to him. We, we know where we are. And I would just wanted to say that if there is anyone where you think, well, yeah, I think... I mean, I, over the years, I've met a number of people who regularly went to church regularly, i can remember <laughs> I can remember one guy who used to he was older than me and he used to sit in the congregation week after week his wife was a believer and he used to come with her and they used, he used to sit there and smile at me at, from the back and, um, and I just knew that he, that he didn't know jesus you know and i sat <laughs> and I, inside you know if i was spe- Preaching the gospel in any way, I'd be looking at him and I'd think, "Come on, you know what's up with you?" You know, I just it just you know, and he'd smile at me. And say, no, and then he'd come up and say, "Chris, you'll be really pleased. What? I finished the Daily Telegraph crossword yesterday." <laughs> <coughs> no, it's not, no, anyway, then one Sunday, one Sunday morning, before the service started, he came up to me. He said, "Chris, there's something." That I thought you want to know? And I said, Oh, yeah, all right, Mike, what? And he said, um, I gave my life to Jesus this week. And I said, All oh, right, what? <laughs> 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 and uh, I mean, sort of dragged him up to the front door in the meeting and said, I think you've got something you need to tell these people. But what a wonderful thing, you know. But he, he, he could have, he sat there for years, Sunday in, Sunday out. Never having personally responded to Jesus, and I just wanted to say that if, if, if you by li- li- thinking about these things feel that you're in that place, then this is the point at which you can surrender your life to Him. Always is when we meet like this, so and if you're if you're like on the other side of that fence where you know that you've received Jesus as your saviour and you look at a passage like this and you think, oh, is this saying that I could lose my salvation? I'm here to tell you in the name of God, no, you cannot lose your salvation. If you've been born again of the Spirit of God, this, this passage is not there to tell you you can lose that. Okay, there's so much else in Scripture that tells you that you are secure, absolutely secure for eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, what that passage calls the oracles of God. That's lovely, Lord, thank you. These are the words that you have spoken. Lord, these are the things that you have said. We thank you, Lord, that when we came to know you, we read your word that said that you chose us from before the foundation of the earth, Lord, that you've got your eye on us, you've got your hand on us, you've got a purpose and a plan for our lives, and we're, we're here to say again today, as we've done in our songs, Lord, in our praying, Lord, we are so grateful for what you have done for us. We thank you for, you've done, that you've done everything that needed to be done for us through your Son Jesus, we thank you for his life, we thank you for his death and his resurrection. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're there at the right hand of the Father at this moment interceding for us. We thank you, Lord, that we are secure in your hands. We thank you that nothing, no one can snatch us out of your hands. We're so grateful, Lord, that we can know for absolute sure, Lord. But the day will come when we will see you face to face and be with you forever. We are so grateful for that knowledge. And Lord, I pray that if there, if there should be anybody here amongst us who's at that place of having tasted of so much good stuff, Lord, from you, but never really given themselves to you, I pray, Lord, that by your grace, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself Give them, Lord, this wonderful opportunity of responding to you in faith. We ask it now in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.